Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Jeff and Sherry Maddox's Bible study entitled Embodying Skin, Soil and Table. Jeff and Sherry live and work in the inner city of Melbourne with Urban Seed, arriving there in late 2016. Between 1999 and 2016, Jeff and Sherry and their son Isaac lived in the inner city of Lexington, Kentucky as missionaries with a focus on neighbourhood outreach and service, where they explore how Wendell Berry's wisdom meets the timeless insights of scripture and how we can inhabit our personhood, our shared humanity and our place with a sense of profound connection. This is part two of their Bible study. What to cook the burrows? That never gets old from there. <laughs> it sounded the burrows here. Um, yesterday um, we gathered, and I see a lot of, of people that were here with us yesterday. Um, and if you weren't, what we're talking about over the span of three days is what does it mean to be embodied? And we started yesterday with personhood, with your skin, yourself. What does it mean um, to be whole and at peace um, and present to God in your life? Um, in that inner journey, um, and um, and yesterday we and we're using Wendell Berry as we look at scripture because he writes so beautifully. Wendell Berry's an essayist and farmer from Kentucky, um, but um, what Wendell Berry gave to us that we discussed yesterday is the understanding that we are not body plus soul equals a human being. We are dust or soil, which I'd like to think of because I'm a gardener. We are made of the soil with God's breath. And we become living souls. And this is coming out of Genesis um, chapter 2. And so we are not a letter slid in an envelope. We are not separate parts. We are whole beings made in the image of God. Um, and we started yesterday with our breath. And we're just going to do a, a minute of, of recognizing our breath. Because I think, again, we spend years not paying attention to the, the, the gifted but involuntary movement of breath in our bodies. Um, and we believe because God inspired all of creation and we believe that God re-inspires every morning and we meet new mercy that our breath comes to us and, and we can pause and receive it and feel it and experience it. So, and I didn't say this yesterday, my background's in physiology, so I just really love understanding how the body works. But our breath, especially if you're nervous or you're distressed, if you come back to your breath, you actually change your blood chemistry and you actually can alter, and this is what people who practice meditation know, you can alter your brain waves and put them in sync with your heart waves, the electricity, the EKG, and the EEG. Amazing stuff, just by breath. And so often we don't pay attention to even how shallow we carry our breath. So, this morning, before we do anything else, if you'll sit up and recognize that you are embodied, if you have this gift of personhood that God's given you, you have a body. Um, and there are no separate parts in your body. There's no little soul box. Um, in fact, we could think of ourselves as our soul is wrapped around outside of us um, and permeates through us this gift from God. So recognize that you have this body and this gift, and you were 
well enough to rise this morning and start a new day. Um, and so let's breathe just a couple of breaths and you can either just feel your breath move in and out or you can actually count your breath, which is a good way to slow and change your body's physiology is if you actually do the four count breath. Inhaling through your nose, you can exhale through your nose or out your mouth and, and you can slow your breath by through that count, inhaling, Let me pray. God, we give you thanks for this new day. We thank you that you have not given up on creation, that you inspire it anew. Thank you, God, um, that we wake to your mercy and to your grace, surrounded by your love and your work in the world. Thank you, God, that you invite us into it and you do good work in us and through us and our relationships. We lift up our bodies to you and give thanks. We lift up all the things that we are connected to, people in place, um, and we give thanks. And we ask ask that you be present to us, Lord, as we meditate on these things, and that you do the work in us necessary for our own flourishing, uh, but for your good in the world. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, good morning. Uh, sleep okay? That's what we say to each other. It's a bit weird with this, because there's going to be different answers here, but I, I suspect that you're awake now. It doesn't mean you've slept at all. Um, feel free to nod off during this too. This might be what God has for you here, to sleep. Um, I wanted to just before, and, and to continue the, 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 the idea of bringing some continuity from what Sherry shared yesterday to today, I want to read a quote. I was struck uh, listening to Sherry yesterday how I think about body as a problem so much. It's framed so much as a, a problem. Our bodies are a problem. Uh, and, and if they're not a problem, then we don't even think about it. So um, I just want to read this. This is a book called, and I want to recommend this book, if you found yesterday inspiring. That was a play on words, inspire, breathe in. Got it? Okay, thanks. I'll be here all week. Um, yeah. So it's called The Revelatory Body. Theology as Inductive Art by Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a New Testament scholar um, and theologian. So he writes really beautifully about how our bodies mediate our relationship with the divine. So God talks to us through our bodies, that our bodies, uh, body language is the first language we learn as infants. Um, and this is not what you would hear from the pulpit very often. It's not what you would learn at theological study, but a man who has spent his life training theology students and ministers has come to a point in his 70s where he said this is the big gap in our theological, in our formation as Christians really. It's about theological formation, but um, so I think it's really helpful. I want to read a little quote from him and it goes like this. My body does not lie outside myself as a problem to be solved as if it were a sculpture to be carved or a project to be engineered. If I do objectify my body in that way, I alienate myself from my true somatic condition, which lies in the realm of the mysterious. That is, a reality in which we are inescapably involved as persons. He goes on to say, a budget is a problem. A marriage is a mystery. A broken watch poses a problem. 
but a dying friend involves us in mystery. Making budget decisions mysteriously is simply silly, but treating marriage as a problem is tragic. Weeping over a stolen car shows confusion, but, but failing to weep for a dying friend reveals alienation. And he goes on to talk about um, something that we'll go into a little deeper tomorrow about the way that we are caught up in the life around us, um, uh, kind of whether we like it or not. Furthermore, my body is by no means isolated from its physical environment. The world is as much within as outside me. The microbes are not simply out there, but are also in here, quietly doing their good work. I suck in and expel the world's atmosphere, in the process feeding the green things around me, which, in their turn, also feed me. Over some 70 years, in fact, I've eaten quite a considerable part of my environment, and while retaining some of it in storage, I've also returned an astounding mountain of body stuff for the world's cycle of regeneration. Dung beetles, you're welcome. As I take, so do I give. As I eat, so am I eaten, while alive and assuredly when I die. My body is not the exception to the world, it is the rule. It is not separate from the world, it is the world in concentrated form. So, there's more of that in the book, if you want to go buy one or borrow it. Um, so, uh, so Wendell Berry. Who's read Wendell Berry or knows about him? Yeah, a few people. Um, for those who don't, I really recommend um, digging in. He writes in different forms and uh, poetry and fiction, and he writes essays. He's an essayist first and foremost. So, if any of those ways of receiving the written word um, are inspiring or easy or easy for you to grasp, then you should lean in that direction. I really love his essays. Um, and you can find, um, what's the one called? Uh, survival. Yeah, the Chris, Sherry mentioned Christianity and the Survival of Creation, which is an essay you can find online for free. It's a, a beautiful, um, brisk statement about uh, some of what Sherry said yesterday, but also why um, ecological concerns go to the very heart of loving the God who made the world. Um, so, Wendell Berry is also really intimidating because he writes so beautifully and he writes with an efficiency and a grace that is really quite rare. Um, so he's loved by lots of people, certainly probably a lot more people who are not, who wouldn't share his faith beliefs. So um, to speak and write about him is like really intimidating, <laughs> really intimidating. So I've tried to be really careful about how I've said things that he might say. Um, and, and so I've written a lot of what I wanted to share. Um, and while that's not quite as um, energizing sometimes, um, I hope that you can experience this time together as, um, as meditative and contemplative. And don't worry if you don't catch stuff, we're gonna have time to talk about questions and things. So if you think of something that you didn't understand or didn't get or I wasn't clear with, probably more likely thing, make a note and um, we'll have a time to go back and forth. Um, so we want to talk about the table today. Yesterday we talked about um, skin, 
Um, and we want to talk about the table as a way of belonging to one another. And not just the dining room table, which is beautiful, and a lot, and a lot of um, agencies and ministries and, and metaphors are built around the table. Um, but all tables, we want to talk about coffee tables, boardroom tables, school lunch tables, picnic tables. Um, what other tables are there? A desk is a kind of a table where we do work. Anyone else? Any, am I missing any tables? Laptop like a table? Yes, it kind of is. A table, tablet, table, tablet. <laughs> laptop. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm thinking. Kind of a, a space that you work on. And what you say, just here? I'm sorry. Oh, just like a workbench, like a workshop bench. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a garden bench or a wood, a bench where you do woodwork or yeah, a space. It's a pretty, it's a pretty primal thing. I think we've been working with tables as long as we worked out we needed to do something. <laughs> we uh, pretty made a table. Any others I might be missing? Yeah, yeah. So a kind of a art bench with your supplies and stuff. Yeah, or a, or a, one of those ones that tilts up for architects. They kind of sketch on drafting table. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted us also to think about not only about those range of tables that we interact with, but also. Who do we sit with at those tables, or who do we interact with at those tables? Who, and, and bigger than that, who crosses the thresholds of the spaces that hold those tables? Work, home, who comes into your house? Um, and then to, to stretch that, that envelope of space out further and think about who comes into my neighborhood, who comes past my home, who walks by, who's welcome and who's not. And then the bigger, Bigger question is who comes into our neighbourhood uh, and our city and our region and our nations. So this this kind of concentric circles keep going out, and I and I, I think we would argue that that there is a strong link between how you treat your most intimate tables, the one right there in your kitchen or your dining room, uh, is echoed in the way we think about our national boundaries. Who do we welcome into our spaces and into our nations? Um, and generosity breeds generosity. And stinginess and walls and barriers um, are built out and out. Um, I want to Sherry just to talk a little bit about a special table for her. And then maybe a few other people might want to talk about a special table. Because uh, it's not just all about utility and pragmatic. We do this on this table. But tables actually start to manifest something quite special because we sit around them and because we do receive our humanity around them. Um. So we've only been here six months and we moved from our home in Kentucky where in our kitchen sat um, a square, wooden, very simple um, pine table. And we've had that table as long as we've been married and our kitchen table was actually my grandmother's table in her kitchen and it was uh, from the 1950s where they had laminate on top of everything because they thought that was good. Um, so I refinished it, refurbished this table by peeling off remaining laminate and got down to really lovely oak, um, not oak, pine planks. And it was just a, such a lovely, ordinary table. Um, but because of our work, we trained as missionaries, only ever worked outside the church in North America. We lived in... Um, really marginalized neighborhood and um, so we didn't have 
an altar, nor did we have um, benches or pews. Uh, we had a kitchen table. We didn't plan for it to be really important, but it became really important because we gave our home um, to God and our backyard and our garden, and so our kitchen table became the place where people gathered. Um, and um, people came back to it, sometimes weekly, that would be our neighbors who crossed the threshold. And so for us, in an exclusively African-American neighborhood, historically a very dignified and neighborhood rich in history, but a very, very poor, um, marginalized neighborhood, um, it took several years for our threshold to be crossed by a person of color. And that was a huge deal, as if the choirs in the heavens would sing when our neighbors would come and sit with us and be with us at our table. Um, and sometimes it was just friends who worked around the world who would come back once a year and sit at our kitchen table. Um, but we, as we learned um, the asset of our home, as we began to understand the center of our lives and the center of our home got to belong to God, and then we could ask the question, who sits at our table? And that's a profoundly um, important question for justice and for inclusion, um, who sits at our kitchen table. Um, and so we worked to practice that kind of hospitality and welcome. And there was no strategy and there was no seminary degree that helped us figure it out. It was a really ordinary um, but important choice. Um, and so that's the, that's a bit about that table. And uh, I, I would be, um, I don't want to romanticize, uh, so much, I think, so much of what we hear at conferences and stuff, it's really like, oh, it's awesome and everything's great. If you just had a special table, then you could do mission and you'd be amazing. And and I, I want to make sure that you know that we um, hid under that table when people came to the back door that we didn't want to talk to sometimes because we felt overwhelmed by the need in our neighborhood and people, um, uh, particularly one man I'm thinking of, uh, a dear man but very demanding of us and um, had certain struggles with mental illness and, and quite violent and he and I more than once he would come to our door and we would be able to see like just see that it's him and we'd hide under the table so this beautiful table that's meant to represent God's open and hospitality and wow I'm Jeff and Sherry with the uh, open door hospitality great we hid under the table so sometimes the table <laughs> is uh, brutalized by our um, unwillingness inability to be as hospitable, hospitable as we hope to be. So, um, I think I think you know it's important that uh, we recognise that a lot of what we share here is shot through with struggle and ache and not enough. And um, but we we're aspirational people. That's what we are as Christians. We aspire to be better, and we and we hope that um, we have the, I mean, so many things here that already that we feel that way. Uh, Welcome to the country was really amazing yesterday. That was huge, but. Um, so we hope you feel, uh, you feel any anxiety about your desires to do really well in following Jesus. You don't, you don't need to feel anxious. It's okay. Um, so yesterday we used skin as the prevailing motif, and we discovered that in Genesis, this is why I love me, that in Genesis we are created in plural. Okay, so we tried to undermine individualism. We human persons are made to belong to one another. Another way of saying this is to use the word membership, that we are members of one another. And, and we kind of discovered that through Genesis where Eve wasn't derived from Adam like some lesser creature. She was, it could be said, the other part of him. And she was the other part of him and he was the other part of her. 
And this isn't a statement about gender or sexuality. It's not a statement, um, a political statement or anything. I, what you do with that, um, I have my opinions. I'm sure you have yours. This is just about belonging and being members of each other as human persons. And we belong uh, to one another because we're members of the same body, this greater body. And we talk about sometimes in terms of, oh, sorry, I don't know how to do that. Hey, there's a bunch of seats up front. There's two benches that are completely empty. Right, right, wow. So they can hold about 12 people. Come on up. Is that like, oh, wow. Yeah, they were here. Look at these benches. Yeah, you can't get out even if it's really boring. <laughs> The look on your face yeah. if you don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Dave's got a footy. Awesome. Yeah. So, if you keep the footy. It's more space. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> just, just as you are, the bus is away. I, I've heard that in this place many, many years ago, and it just feels good to say it. Um, yes, so, Eve. Adam, belonging to each other. This is the theological bottom line about being a human person. And Adam even says, kind of blurts out when he sees Eve, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We could say that to each other um, to recognize that we're of the same stuff and we belong to each other. Um, it's also worth noting, and we can talk about this tomorrow actually, that in Genesis 2.19, that out of the ground God formed every animal and every bird um, that we're made from the same stuff as all creation. Um, but we can talk about that a bit more tomorrow. Today we wanted to constrain our conversation about our belonging and our membership to other humans. So this is about your humanity and we're going to talk about the bigger circle of belonging and membership tomorrow. So membership. This idea of membership is a major theme in Wendell Berry's work. He writes in his novels about the fictional town of Port William, Kentucky. Has anyone read any of the Port William sagas? Yeah? Oh, lovely day. It's good. Uh, what you, what's your favourite? Uh, one of the... Jabber Crow. Crow. Yeah. That's, Jabber Crow, if anyone wants to read it, that, I think that's the best one to go with. Because it's a big story and it's kind of a bit epic and generations. And But Jabber Crow, Crow is a really good one. Um, Port William is an isolated farming community and its members' lives are traced in careful, loving detail by Barry. It's not idealised or romanticised. There are betrayals, there's sickness, death and confusion, which reminds us of our own communities and the communities described in the scriptures. Um, Barry returns continually to this theme of membership. And he even says that it's salvific, that, it, that membership is what saves us. Membership to place, membership to one another and membership to God's ways um, is the work of salvation. Um, so he actually argues that, and, and I, I think I'm convinced by this, he asks us to think about um, membership as a grown-up version of belonging. I think belonging is a more, is a more passive state um, and to be a member requires you've got skin in the game. To belong is an important step on the way, but it's just a step. And to get a sense of the gravity of that word, like membership or member, think about that horrible word uh, or phrase, a dismembered body. I mean, it's just gruesome and it, and it evokes kind of this sense of tragedy. Um, and so the very opposite of that is to be, to be membered, 
to be part of the membership. Um, I would say furthermore, membership is not something to buy our way into. So you can't kind of purchase it. It's not something that you get because you work hard. It's something you actually you receive, which sounds a lot like grace. Um, and one commentator is kind of writing about this and, and commenting on Wendell Berry's writing. He says this, and he's talking about the Port William, the fictional writings. The book's heroes reject the notion that you make your own identity rather than receive it. They know and they embrace who they are through their connection to things larger than themselves. Their community, the land, the march of history, the mysterious purposes of God. They find joy, peace and freedom in accepting their subsidiary status. So, what does that have to do with the table? While we may think of food as the reason for many of our tables, I want to suggest the table has a deeper reason and a deeper logic than food. And that logic and that reason is membership. At the table we expose our vulnerabilities, a need for food, our need for company, a need for things that we cannot and should not supply and experience alone. Around the table we receive our membership in the human family. And that's through the dignity of work, it's through the dignity and beauty of art, uh, Table we've to, tables we've talked about, the coffee table, which is a lovely informal space to gather and to see each other and recognise each other, and obviously the dinner table. And in the same way that we cannot detach ourselves from our bodies, because we, we don't exist without bodily form. Remember the resurrection is a bodily resurrection. There is no gassy part of us that exists without body. Um, there is a, yeah, sorry, that's, thank you. That we are fleshy creatures. We are blood and bone and skin and hair. That is who we are and we need to embrace that. In the same way we can't detach ourselves from our bodies, we cannot detach ourselves or remove ourselves from the membership of the human family. Um, and I'm going to go back to Wendell. Would you mind reading this? This is the... Uh... So, in this quote, Wendell is commenting on his understanding of membership and being what he calls a forest Christian. I use the phrase forest Christian to suggest what has been for me a necessary shift in perspective on the New Testament from that of the church to that of the whole creation. I don't want to sound too positive or knowing about this because I hope to understand the problem better than I do, but I feel more and more strongly that when St. Paul said that, quote, we are members of one another, he was using a far more inclusive we than Christian institutions have generally thought. For me, this is the meaning of ecology. Whether we know it or not, whether we want to be or not, we are members of one another. Humans, ourselves and our enemies, earthworms, whales, snakes, squirrels, trees, topsoil, flowers, weeds, germs, pills, rivers, swifts, and stones, all of us. The work of the imagination, I feel, is to understand this. I don't think it can be understood by any other faculty. And to live here very long or very well, humans now have to understand it. For us, it is not a question of whether or not we shall be members of one another. 
but of whether or not we shall know that we are and act accordingly. And I just want to highlight there where he talks about how do we, well then how do we do this and why haven't we done this? And he says it's a, it's a lack of imagination um, in the negative or in the positive, it's a work, the good work of imagination to find that. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out because this is a Bible study that uh, scholars are discovering that, that in fact where the word in English shows up heart, the cardiovascular thingy, that is a much better translation in Old Testament Hebrew is imagination. Okay, so God's offering a new imagination at those points where we think about new heart, which is lovely imagery, but often it can be confined to nice things, you know, the, the warm feelings of the heart, or maybe something isolated and quite individual. Um, when in actual fact, the heart is the imagination. So what happens if we turn that lovely old evangelical phrase, invite Jesus into your heart? What would it mean to invite Jesus into your imagination? I mean, it's a far more compelling, quite a dramatic change in the way we conceive conversion and everything that follows after that. And, and the, conver- you know, the one-time conversion and then the everyday conversion that I need, which is to say yes again to the world and to the ways of Jesus. Um, so imagination is really important. I didn't want to skip over that without mentioning it. So, so Wendell says that we're, we're kind of inescapably caught up with each other. Um, another great prophet um, and saint, Martin Luther King, says a similar thing. You probably heard this is from his um, his letter from Birmingham Jail, Birmingham, Birmingham Jail. It's not Birmingham. It's Birmingham. <laughs> so language is difficult in a cross-cultural marriage. Um, so he says, moreover. And I can't do the accent now, because it would be terrible. I'm not going to do the accent. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and, and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. So I think what MLK is talking about there is this, the way these borders move out. We talked about you know, a kitchen table and the threshold to our kitchen door or our back door, and the threshold just keeps moving out. And for, for MLK and so many in the civil rights struggle, that threshold was kind of north and south. It was bathrooms and drinking fountains. It was lunch counters. Um, we have our own thresholds in our own life, and we also have our national thresholds. And um, right now I don't have to talk about that with this group, this crowd here. We, we all know this, the terrible um, unfaithfulness uh, of being so um, inhospitable to people who need a home and a place. So when we talk about embodiment and the table, we see that our ideas about membership, who and what we belong to, that starts at the table and is in, has implications for neighbourhoods, regions, states and nations. 
So it would be it would be easy enough to find examples of the way Jesus embodied and, and declared this unqualified membership to one another around the table and food, and we probably could go around and get some great stories about that. It's a meaning-making space for Jesus, a space for dispute, politics, forgiveness, betrayal, thanksgiving, ingratitude, exclusion, inclusion, and service. I mean, Jesus even says, I come to one who serves at tables. Remember that great thing? That bit? Okay. Um, and then, of course, the prodigal son who gets invited back to the table. I mean, that's the, that's the end game, the feast and the table and the food and the welcome because um, his humanity's been diminished. But I actually think it's more challenging and, and, and actually more useful and interesting to go to a lesser known moment in Jesus' ministry where he offended his own faith community with a message of enemy love. And we know the passage, and I just want to drill in on one particular place. Um, and it's Luke 4. Um, and I want you to, I want you to, Sherry's going to read it, and I want you to hear it in its significance. Luke 4 is not, okay, in, in my opinion, it's not, it's not just another bit along the way to Jerusalem. This is a really significant moment in the ministry, and I think Luke is trying to, like, raise all the flags to this. This is a big deal. He's just come back from the desert, full of the Holy Spirit. He's been ordained effectively by God um, through baptism. Um, this is a big deal. And this service that he goes to, this service, this church service, this is his inaugural address. So I don't know if you caught Donald Trump's inaugural address, uh, but they do that. We do that politically, right? We have our leaders make their first... So this is Jesus' inaugural address. So I think it, it, it needs to be elevated and highlighted um, for those reasons. So. From Luke 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been reared. As he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. When he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, God's Spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind to set the burdened and battered free, to announce this is God's year to act. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the place was on him, intent. Then he started in. You've just heard scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. All who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. But they also said, isn't this Joseph's son? The one we've known since he was a youngster? He answered, I suppose you're going to quote the proverb, Doctor, go heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. Well, let me tell you something. No prophet is ever welcomed in his hometown. Isn't it a fact that there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah during that three and a half years of drought when famine devastated the land? But the only widow to whom Elijah was sent was in Sarah in Sidon and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha but the only one cleansed was Naaman the Syrian that set everyone in the meeting place seething with anger they threw him out banishing him from the village then took him to a mountain cliff at the edge of the village to throw him to his doom but he gave them the slip and was on his way 
yeah, so the scene is, you know, the homecoming, this great new uh, prophet, someone with great authority. They're all loving it. They're like, hey, isn't this guy, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? He's awesome. He's one of our boys. Like there was real provincial love for this guy. And then Jesus seeing that says, i got to tell you, prophets don't get welcome back home. Um, and he goes on to tell these two stories. Um, and it's the second one I want to focus on. Um, but I think it's important to note too, this is the first assassination attempt on Jesus. Later on, um, who knows how many there were that weren't recorded, but obviously the, the, the end one um, in Jerusalem. But for his own people to want to finish him off. I mean, I've heard some bad preaching in my time, but you know, you just kind of <laughs> put up with it and move on. They actually afterwards want to take him out. So this has really, really offended them. And I want to suggest the scandalous truth that Jesus was preaching relates directly to what we're talking about today, which is which is to say that we belong to one another across religious, ethnic, national, neighborhood, all those boundaries and lines. We belong to one another. I mean, this is a really scandalous truth if you take it to heart, because you don't you don't get to find anyone that you're not compelled to feel compassion for and to feel connected with, which is exhausting if you think about it, but it's also the reason we have so much conflict and so much injustice and so much of the things that, that we're all here to talk about and wonder about and, and ache over. So what Jesus is saying through the story of Naaman um, is that even our enemies are members of our family. Jesus never suggested that we should simply love our enemies by avoiding contact or conflict with them. He was forcing us to accept the fact that we are members of one another and that we take responsibility for the welfare of one another. So in this name and story, Jesus um, refers to the people of church being so offended Luke is telling us these guys were so offended they want to kill him um, and he's not just announcing some rigorous political economic overhaul where everyone gets he's actually saying this guy Naaman does, do any people know this story so well because it's kind of obscure Old Testament story now it's obscure to us but it's not obscure to the people who are listening they know well who Naaman is and they know well who uh, that he was healed that he was healed without any uh, expectation there was no conversion moment, like, just come to Jesus and you'll get healed. There was none of that. It was, it was I need to get healing. This guy does it over here. Oops, sorry. Um, and I'm going to go get it. And he does that. And the amazing thing is Elisha says, Shalom, go in peace. And Naaman at that point is like the military leader of the enemy of Israel. Like, this is like, this is like an Iraqi having Colin Powell come in and need healing during the Gulf War, and he heals him and says, that's fine, on your way. I mean, it's just profoundly against all of the ways we think about enemy. Even for those of us who are like, oh, we're cool, we love our enemies, you know, we're cool. Like, face to face, this is a really powerful story. And so in that, in that exchange, there's even a little more detail that we get from, um, from Kings, Second Kings 5 is the story, if you want to go look at it, I don't want to and dwell on it for too long but he actually says can I give you some money for this 
you know, for my healing, you know, like, fair, fair enough, it's an exchange, transaction. No, you, you don't owe me anything. Just go in peace. Shalom. Now, shalom, without going to all that, is the most powerful, it's the biggest word in the, in the Hebrew language. It catches up everything, salvation, healing, hope, love, kindness, restoration, reconciliation. That's what shalom is, and it's for us, right? That's our gift from God to the special people. And so you imagine the audience is listening to Jesus say this, and he's suggesting that actually God's good news is for everyone. It envelops everyone. That shalom flows freely without any cost. I mean, you, you shut down the church industry. The synagogue industry is shut down because there's no need to barter and exchange and pay for it anymore. And so it's really, really scandalous. Um, and I think we can read over that and, and skip it. So I want to come back to these questions of who sits at your table. And I don't expect that we're going to be able to answer this. Um, my experience of gatherings like this is that we get to get a few ideas and go away with them rather than resolve them. Um, so I want, But I want you to think about, and then we'll do some questions. And these questions, again, I'm just going to list. Who sits at my table? Who crosses the thresholds of my home? Who comes into my neighborhood? Who is allowed to cross our national borders? Who is welcome in my life? Do we expect to get something back when we offer hospitality? Do we see the good news as a transaction? And I guess the challenge for me as I read this story, and I think Bible studies are great, and I love this because this is actually Jesus doing a Bible study. Because he's standing up and saying, hey, do you want to know about, let me tell you a story from scripture. And he tells the story of Naaman. And if what he says is true, then God is pretty hands off with the distribution of shalom. It's not for special religious folk. It's not for privileged people. It's for the whole world. It's for all people. And, and, our, and often our systems of, of relationship are set up to benefit us. Um, so I just want us to, to feel that challenge. Um, so that's pretty much all I'm going to say. So if, if we could finish early, or if you have any questions that, about yesterday or today, or about... Uh, Wendell Berry goes on and on about enemy love, and uh, I've had the blessing of sitting at his kitchen table, and having him tell about his neighbours and some of the struggles he's had. And that man, he does it. It's really hard where he lives because he's uh, as country as Wendell is. Um, his neighbours are really country. And a lot of what he talks about is really hard for him to, for them to grasp, um, not just using poisons on land, but um, the way they think about religion and neighbours. Um, so. So any questions? Anything you don't want to say or question? I was just thinking when you were saying about how there's no expectation. How there's no expectation and nothing to come back. And I totally agree with that, except that in some of the relationships I've had, like real relationships with um, people who might be from a dysfunctional background or something, I began to think that it was actually healthier for them, for me to expect something back. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, just... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. yeah. 
Absolutely. I hope you heard that. Um, because, well, I mean, we're going to always have to live with paradox. You know, the sooner we get yeah. comfortable with both and being true, yeah. that the unconditional and the mutuality yeah. can stand together, you know, in this, this complex mystery of what it means to be related, what it means. I mean, the more we we follow God, the simpler things get, and the more we even wrestle with Trinitarian understanding, we think the universe is built on relationships. So science is bringing that to bear. The whole world, the cosmos and cre the creation is all based on relationship. Like, and that's ecology, you know, that everything is related. Um, and so within relationships, for sure it's true that we already embody unconditional love and yet um, mutuality and interdependence, I think, is really what you're describing is essential, especially when power comes into play. If you're the one, you know, extending the gifts and the grace and the resources to someone who is suffering or struggling, you know, there's, there can easily always be a power issue. And so, yes, the expectation um, of, you know, whatever it could be is very important to the dignity of human relationships, for sure. And your own humanity and, and me, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's really good. I just want to say I'm super thankful for hearing this. I, I really enjoy woodwork and I do it's a three metre long workbench for, I run a woodwork group in my workshop at home and ten boys from the local kind of area from different schools come and do woodwork in my shed. And this was kind of a selfish workbench to start with but it's become a real gift to the community. And I also make coffee tables for like my brother's wedding and whatever. And it really, um, like I've always known there's something about tables, but it kind of, just also from a maker's perspective, from a creator's perspective, thinking that I'm gonna make this coffee table for this household or for my brother's wedding or for my sister or for a friend overseas. The thought of that table being used as a space for all these different aspects of life that love can flow out of them, that my, my study bench, the love can flow out of that or my coffee table or my, yeah, it's just really beautiful, so thank you. That is, thank you for, for sharing that because I, I think that conveys the reality that, um, one, we said yesterday, I don't know if you were here, that as we move from a separated or a um, disembodied self to acceptance to then we end up as artists, as creative selves because we're made to be artists and our artistry is infinite in its application. So, you know, the fact that woodworking is a beautiful art and the capacity for you to live in that and the gifts that come through you because of that art are just the infinite possibilities. And, and I, I love that you shared that because we would hope whenever we have a chance to share um, with folks that are considering mission and life and service, we try to say over and over again, what makes you feel most alive? Do that. Um, because I'm a gardener. I mean, I, I, it's my seminary degree is a little bit of a waste, except that God did a lot of transforming work in my life. But my seminary degree didn't really have much to do with how I ended up living in our neighborhood and like you, doing a craft. And my garden was the most healing and intimate space for me. And then it became a gift to the neighborhood too. And it became true of both things. And so we love, as we talk about imagination, which is God's greatest gift to us. It's so rich and limitless the capacity to dream up what is possible um there's just so much you can do uh for good work in the world that um, nurtures relationship like you do through your gift 
um, and the blessing and the lasting blessing that something like a table is. Um, but that's the same with artwork and a garden and um, cooking and in, in whatever ways you love and serve. So, I mean, throw the doors open because the, the church is just the start of it. And, you know, what looks like ministry in the church is really small compared to the possibilities in the world. Briefly, um, that I, I had his wife Tanya. Um, is is quite remarkable. He's very aware of those things. He's very articulate about them. Um, and uh, you're right. He he's in fact some people have said because you know, he doesn't have a computer, right? So uh, um, and some people have said he doesn't have a computer because he has a wife. So it's kind of you know he, she types everything really, and um, and. She, and she would say, as a very strong feminist, I want to do this. Is what how we partner together. Um, so I reckon that's a really good point. And his books, I don't read his fiction and don't enjoy it as much um, because of that. I think, and and, the, and it's also a bit whimsical. The, just in terms of the, the colonising past, a book he's written called The Hidden Wound. Have you seen that one? Yeah. And that's a really good articulation of some of the wrestling he has with with place and history and slavery and indigenous cultures as well. But. And I would say, um, I haven't read a lot of his fiction either, not, not because it offends me. Um, I would say he's, he's certainly a man of his times and that's not making excuses. He's in his 80s. And so, you know, what comes out of him is when he was formed in his literary time of study and after in the 40s and the 50s. I mean, that's, that's what shaped him, whether that's good or bad. Um, and I've never experienced any, any kind of offense. That's why outside perspectives are really helpful. It's lovely for Australians to read that and say, wow, you know, because I'm from the South um, and, and I have a beautiful, gentle, loving father who empowered me. And so someone like Wendell Berry, because of Southern culture, fits in a landscape that doesn't, doesn't offend my sensibilities. Um, and I would say I've experienced him most importantly as a prophetic voice in Kentucky and into the US um, speaking to Christians and to the rest of the nation that would listen about creation, about the destruction, specifically around coal mining. And because he's been a prophet, and he's come out to edges that prophets do, you know, they shout from the edges or push out to the edges, um, he's made so much space that as, a, as a, an artist that he is, I trust that while he might um, be conveyed as, you know, outdated and a bit, you know, maybe patriarchal or I think he is he has so much space in him and has such a holistic sense of where humans fit on the landscape that he would make his own apologies for that does that make sense I don't get any sense he's certainly curmudgeonly he's really a grumpy human being um, and he's incredibly withdrawn like you know he doesn't ever have visitors he does it he's quite a he you know he's not a warm and fuzzy guy um, but I would never think that um, you know 
he would he would want to convey that. I think it's more dated. His his literature is very dated. But thank you. I think those outside perspectives are so important. great question and we've concerned ourselves with that a lot in the past few years because we've had years of experience um, living in community living and um, inviting people in and having hospitality and really demanding sets of circumstances so we spent a lot of time thinking about that and um, rest is essential um, for the human body and everybody needs different kinds of rest um, but we've come up against that because we lived and worked in the United States, especially because there is a very strong extroverted bias. So if anybody's read Susan Cain's great book, which is just a fantastic book, um, what's it called? Quiet. Quiet. Quiet in a world that won't stop talking. Um, in that, because she's an American, she identifies that there is this really, in American culture, the kind of American is the happy, optimistic salesperson, the very extroverted, engaging person, and that really has, um, has marginalized, you know, people who don't draw energy, and so I think in community life, often, there, there's a kind of pinnacle of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian, which is, oh, I live in community, I'm with people pretty much 16 hours a day, and, you know, and I think that's a huge problem, because it's not natural, it doesn't respect the diverse dispositions across humanity, um, and, it, and it doesn't respect seasons and cycles in the way people um, relate, um, and so I think that the best thing we can do is, in what Jeff has said, is that so if we believe we belong to one another in a membership, we need to grow always in understanding each other. And there are ways to understand each other well, like Enneagram. There, there, there are tools and instruments that help you know <laughs> who you are. And then as you can grow to understand the people you love and that God's trusted to you and you've been entrusted to, out of that should come respect for those boundaries. Um, rest is essential. And I don't care how happy-go-lucky you are, how much energy you have, I think you at least need six hours a day. I mean, they're starting to look at the effects on the brain um, and on the body with less than six hours. I mean, but respect somebody who needs nine hours of sleep. Or who just needs quiet every day, um, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Talk one more, I think. If anyone has something. You know, I'll just say, if there's not another question or a, a perspective to be shared, I, I had a conversation this morning, because um, I was up early and with Kirsty, who was also up early, and we were just talking about issues that divide the church, you know, very um, divisive issues, um, to name it, um, but we were talking about how quickly, because of an issue, we are willing to create boundaries, and then out of that, we're willing to actually break relationship, and we were talking about how to address the difficulties um, when either your own feelings or someone that you're close to feels um, to the point of exclusion about an issue. So whether that's in the treatment of Muslims or um, gay brothers and sisters, you know, those kinds of issues, and as we talked through it, you know, I said, 
we're called to be in relationship. We're called to, to cross boundaries in, with love and in love in ways that we can't imagine. And it's easy to read back in history and go, oh, yeah, well, that was all right. I mean, he was over there in Syria. But when we think about it live and real now and what we're led to, um, and we talked about how difficult and complex the issues are and, and what I said over our years of experience with lack of health care and working with refugees, <laughs> my opinion on health care in America wasn't ideological it, about access and the universality of it, which I believe in, but it was sitting in long, long lines at the health department with refugees who were getting little or no access to health care. Um, so I think if we approach these issues as relational people, in relationship with others, we go from objectifying people, which we should never, ever do. We should never, it's, that allows for violence when we objectify a person or a group or a place, including the environment and the soil. And so when we can move to subjectivity where we are in relationship with others for the sake of love, um, for God's kingdom, then we can begin to wrestle with the difficulties and the complexities of that. And so all I would say, I think, is that as we consider what it means to belong to one another, um, that we have to do that with love um, and with trust of the Holy Spirit, um, that we would belong before we would divide. And that's really hard work and it'll take the rest of our lives. Amen. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. This is one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 17 Melbourne. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and check out our website surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to get involved.